Here's a little fun fact about me. I was born in the south of India, in the small town called Vellur. And then when I was 10, I moved to Singapore. And then I've been there ever since. I was raised there. I, did, I lived the major part of my life over there. I miss it. I miss being back home. And, um, and then I moved over here to Toronto to pursue a degree in film studies. Um, it's been good. And uh, the reason why I brought up Singapore is because my guest today, who's sitting across from me, is also from Singapore. In fact, we went to the same high school together. And our paths actually never crossed while we were there. But it did over here. And we even used to be roommates over here. And um, the reason why he's here today, and one interesting fact about him, is that he served two years in the Singapore Armed Forces. And that's why he's here, to talk, talk about that, talk about his journey, and some interesting stories that he's going to share today. Uh, I want to welcome my friend, Shravan Shastri, to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Ani. Good. It's good to be here. You know, it's my first podcast, and I'm happy to be your guest. All right. So for the listeners who might not know what NS, NS stands for National Service, which is um, a two-year term that people serve in the Singapore Armed Forces. Now, to the people who don't know what that is, do you mind explaining to them the concept of NS? Who does it? When do they do it? And who is required to do it? Of course, yeah. So I had a similar journey like Ani. When I was 10, uh, I moved to Singapore. And when I, by the time I was 13, uh, uh, my whole family got permanent residence in Singapore, which meant that when I was 18, I would have to enlist in the Singapore Armed Forces, which is a mandatory service for all Singaporeans and permanent residents when they turn 18. Singapore has this mandatory service in place because we don't have enough people to uh, defend the country. It's a small island, 5 million population. So Singapore has this concept. So every single household, there's a person who can defend the country. That's actually a really good definition. Like, you know, when you say like, eat, there's a person in every single household that can defend it. I never thought about it that way. That was, that's pretty cool. All right. And uh, what, does, what does the NS journey entail? And take us through your personal journey as well, how you got into it right after high school. And uh, yeah. Honestly, my NS journey was worth it. You know, a lot of people don't say it, even though they know it is. It's because it takes up two years of your time. You know, after high school, all we want to do is go to university, get a degree. But in Singapore, you have to do two years of army before you go to university. So a lot of people do not like that. But in NS, there's always something to learn. So um, before I turned 18, I got a letter from the government saying, this is the date you have to enlist. Since you're turning 18, you're graduating high school. This date, come here. That's where you're going to go to army. Before that, you'll have to go through some medical tests, which the army conducts, just to see your fitness level or if you're fit for combat training or if they, you know, if you're not fit to combat, they'll put you in something else. So when you enlist, every single soldier goes through basic military training where they just learn basic army skills, which every soldier needs. But after this eight weeks of basic military training, uh, all soldiers go through their separate paths. Some go to command schools, some even become clerks or storemen. Or the one thing everyone should understand is in army, soldiers are not the only people in army. 
there are a lot of people who work behind the desk making sure all the you know exercises the missions are properly properly planned so us people on the field can execute it properly so what are the different what so how does each person get put into um those categories so in your basic military training i would say it's the most important 8 weeks in the start of your army because in these 8 weeks you'll go through a lot of training and tests which your commanders will know if what path is suitable for you if you perform really well you get to go to command school become a commander and come back and train soldiers and it's like a cycle but of course not everyone is fit i'm not saying they're unfit but a lot of people have medical issues health issues so there are a lot of we need drivers to drive us to the jungle and back you know so that's an option for them in the store we need someone someone to handle the stores someone becomes a storeman for me i was a sergeant so my job was to train so that's also a path you can take uh but in army all you need to know is this job for everyone and everyone is important now let's come to you what was your personal trajectory like so what did you specifically get into and uh, in these two years what did you start off as and what kind of achievements did you have along the way and can you take us through that yeah of course so in my family i'm the first one to serve national service and as international students in singapore i mean i i think you can relate in school we didn't really come across a lot of singaporeans because it's no, all expats right yes so i didn't know anyone who did army i couldn't get insights before i went in and when i went in it was honestly overwhelming but uh, that honestly helped me in, over here as well in the future but uh, when i went in basic military training i was fortunate enough to have a really good sergeant who guided me and also kind of because of him i wanted to become a sergeant as well and that motivated me to perform well in my basic military training and i was chosen to go to command school uh, i was a cadet for 8 months and i trained to become a sergeant and once my term was done i came back to the same island i trained as a recruit to train new recruits so you started off like if i'm right in saying at the bottom of the food chain like every single person and then you made your way up and you were in a leadership position yes yeah, so in army it's very authority is clearly stated you know who's your superior who know, you know who's under you and everything all the ranks are on your merit you have to perform to get promoted and achieve that position so yes i start everyone starts off at the bottom but honestly if you put in good work and you get to lead and that's what army wants you know they want more people to go to command school more people to lead so even after army when they go in working environment they can lead any team they have so after you finished your basic military training what was the next step so the next step was cadet school which was what, what what is cadet school cadet school is where all we are training to be specialists so all of us are training to become sergeants so i was in infantry so that's basically your foot soldiers you know so we went overseas to train as well and uh, this 8 month of training was honestly one of the toughest trainings you can think of but honestly it helped me in the future and so yes so when i went to cadet school it was 
you know, pretty overwhelming as well. And I personally thought it was it'll be more on the field, you know, doing more training, you know, physically. But I was surprised, you know, because we had so many lectures, uh, quizzes, which we had to pass, you know. And uh, it's because you need to have the brains to lead people as well, you know. In army, I, I would say the people who hold strong position are the people who work in the office because if you don't plan it right, you will never execute it right. And what would you say is your personal highest achievement as an NS man? I would say my highest achievement would be when I became a sergeant and came back to train new recruits. And uh, then I got promoted to a platoon sergeant where I was in charge of about 50 recruits at a time and directly involved in their everyday training. And as a platoon sergeant, you kind of are middle ground between the other sergeants and the officer because you're helping the officers and you're helping the other fellow sergeants as well. So it was a big responsibility. And you also have to know, like the people I trained are citizens who are freshly to army, you know? So it's a transition period for them as well. And you need to be extra vigilant to kind of track their progress because a lot of people don't want to be there, you know? And you really have to take care of them. and their responsibility is in your hands, you know. And once they graduate, once you train them and they finish their training, even the commanders like myself, I kind of feel proud, you know, because these guys go to cadet schools, become sergeants, and come and replace myself. So, you know, you kind of feel that, okay, I led his journey at the start. He became a sergeant and he's going to replace me. So you were his mentor kind of thing. And exactly. That's the kind of ongoing relationship and that you have with them. Exactly. And it's the same thing with my sergeant, right? My sergeant made me want to be a sergeant. So, of course, I want to train my recruits and make them want to be a sergeant as well. Or even officers, a higher rank than me. I'll be even more proud. Now, you mentioned transition period. And I think that brings about a really interesting, uh, important topic in my head. And I think it's a crucial part of everyone's life, no matter you know what you're doing. But I think change is a crucial part of everyone's life. And I'm sure, you know, we went to international school, right? You know, we weren't really part of the local scene as much. We were very much in the expat scene. And how was that change like transitioning from going from an international school into a completely Singaporean sort of lifestyle? How was that change? Oh, it was, it was different, you know, like, um, how would I say? Yeah, as an international student, I know a lot of international students kind of find it hard. But honestly, as international students, we are kind of prepared to go and face change. You know, international school, you know, we, ex- you know, we get exposure to so many different people. And it's the same thing. You know, this was the first time I got, I got close to Singaporeans and kind of got feel of the local community. And I did a lot of you know, fun activities with them. We hung out when we, you know, went out outside the camp, you know. So, and honestly, I would say for all international students, if you go in with the open mind, everyone's accepting, you know. Even with uh, Toronto, when I moved here, it's very similar to Singapore, where it's a very multicultural community. And I would say Army made my transition to moving to Toronto even easier. And, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, you're able to tell me all this, but before that, you know, just graduated IB in 2017. 
expecting to enlist very soon what was going on through your head and what was the preconceived notion that you had of this experience that you were about to commit to for the next 2 years of your life what was going on through your head emotionally or even logistically like what were you expecting and uh, what was the reality like i mean you've told us what the reality is but what what was the preconceived notion yeah in in my head um i was prepared because as soon as i told you as i as i got my pr when i was 13 i knew this day would come and even uh, after the first year of ib i saw all my friends applying to universities and stuff at that time i didn't feel pressure because i knew i you know i i can apply later on uh and yeah when the day of the army came i was prepared and i went in and for me it was simple if i'm giving in 2 years of my life i'm going to make sure it's worth it a lot of people go in thinking okay you know i'll just get you know i'll just work less so i have less responsibility and the 2 years will fly by but for me i wanted to take on the responsibility i wanted to make sure you know these 2 years if i'm really giving in for something i'd rather make it you know make the most out of it make something out of it exactly yeah. and i'm not going to lie if you really want to make something out of it you have to take on these responsibilities and stuff and even after cadet school when i got my rank as a sergeant there's no room for mistakes i agree with what you're saying you know if you're going to complete if you're going to commit 2 years of your life to something and it's an experience right it's an inevitable experience as a singapore permanent resident you might as well make something out of it and it's your country at that point so it's your way of getting indoctrinated into the country in a way so instead of seeing it as something let me just get it over with you saw it as something that okay what can i learn from this too i mean yeah exactly um i totally agree with you national service in singapore is mandatory i mean i know a lot like myself army is not the career i want to pursue and a lot of others like me but there's no way to get out of it you know it's a mandatory thing so if there's no escape you have to do it might as well do it perfectly and staying on the subject of change what did you do to sort of encounter these changes or like change in atmosphere how was it how did it throw you off if it did at all you say you were prepared but i'm sure it would have thrown you off in a couple different ways here and there and how did you manage those changes of course um in army when you go of course even if you're prepared there's a lot of other things which come into play um like so for two years i woke up you know before the sunrise you know most of the time you know you go to breakfast about 4:35 you start the day early you end it just early so you have enough sleep you know right now university i get about 4 hours 3 hours sleep in army they made sure everyone has 8 hours so when they wake up have breakfast come back they're ready to train for the rest of the day so a lot of the systematic routine which you know high school students don't have it takes time to adjust you know waking up early you know but the commanders also know that not only international students but everyone is going through the change even locals find it hard as well because it's not something we do on a regular basis right all the discipline all uh this whole routine which army follows and uh honestly my the commanders do their best to help us transition because you have to know the commanders were also recruits at one point 
I was a recruit at one point. So when I became a sergeant, I know what the recruit goes through. So our job is to make it easy for them and to help them. But at the same time, they have to also help us help them. Recruit, by the way, to reiterate is the person is what you are when you freshly join NS. Yes. So recruits don't have rank. So that's when you're training for your basic military training. So during that phase, you're a recruit, you're fresh in army. And once you finish your basic military training in eight weeks, you get your rank. And that's when you're not a recruit anymore. And that's when, so when you finish your BMT, basic military exactly. training, is when you are sent off in these duties that uh, you may or may not get. Yeah. Uh, sort of. Okay, cool. Um, now, I want to come back to when you said you were, you got into this leadership position. What what were you basically? What was the, what was the position? Yeah, so after my eight months of uh, training to become a sergeant, I became a section commander. So I went back to train recruits as a section commander. So I was in charge of a section, which consisted of about 16 recruits. So after my first batch of recruits, I was promoted on my performance to become a platoon sergeant. So a platoon sergeant's duty is to take charge of four sections along with all the section commanders. And how many people are there in each section? In each section has about 16 recruits. A platoon has about 60. And the whole company has about 200 recruits. And who, how many of these people were you directly in charge of? Over, the, over my time as a sergeant, I would say I've trained directly about 200 recruits. And, you know, something about this leadership position is obviously not, not something that you would come across, you know, in daily life, right? You know, you, you see these people in like leadership positions in university, in like corporate settings and everything. You know, there's an objective, everyone's there, but in the army, it's different, right? It, there's a lot of emotions at stake. There's a lot of discomfort. And what was that like? You know, being in a leadership position like that, what sort of ways did you adapt to lead your recruits? Yeah, so leadership position, the army prepares you for it. And these eight months as a cadet was that period. So the eight months as a cadet, we are kind of playing and trying to learn how to lead. And along the way, that's a time when we can make mistakes. You know, our commanders say, when you're a cadet, make mistakes. That's how you learn. But once you get the rank, you can't make mistakes. You know, they expect you to know everything when you get the rank because you're a commander. So I would say it, it's this, this whole system has been going on for the past 50 plus years, you know, and most of the commanders in army are young people like myself, you know, that. The army is most consistent of all the NS men, which are the two-year mandatory service people. So in leadership position, it can sometimes get overwhelming when you have to take charge of so many people. But in army, along with leadership, it's also teamwork which comes into play because you are also around a lot of other leaders who also help you along the process. And these are like the senior people. Yes, these are the senior people, but also you have a lot of other sergeants who were cadets with me. I trained to become sergeants with them. And so you have that bond from, you know, previous, we 
train together and we graduate together as a sergeant and we train recruits as a sergeant. So everyone respects commanders because we earn our ranks and we all deserve to be there. And in Army, I've never come across someone who's not helpful, you know. Commanders, we love to take care of one another, you know. And when you say authority, like what do you, what is the magnitude of authority we are talking about? So in Army, we have one thing. So if, if someone superior to you, you know, of course, tells you to do something like a task and you don't really understand why you're doing it, you don't really ask why, you just do it, you know. As long as it's not crossing the boundaries or if, if you know, it's not violating anything, you know. Uh, but in army, it's, we don't ask why, you know, that's one thing in a business setting. Of course, you would want to know what, you, why you're doing it. Right. But in army, sometimes you, you might be just asked to do something, but the why doesn't really matter to you. Maybe you don't need to know the why your bosses know what the why is, but in a business setting, of course, like if you don't know the why you, you know, what are you working for? Right. It's like that. And what happens when you question your, uh, when you ask the why, when you pop the why, what happens? Well, uh, in, I mean, not many people pop that question, to be honest, because, you know, they know. They're but, scared. I mean, the, the why, I mean, it's, it's not like even when I tell my recruits to do something, it's not that uh, I want to do something bad to them, you know, like, Small things, uh, like suppose if I needed my recruits for an activity at 5 p.m., I will tell them, be down at 5 p.m. But if they ask me why, they don't have to know. I'll tell them why later on. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's how army works. That's how, you know, that's how I was treated as a recruit. And this thing is passed down because it's authority. It's, you know, that's how people work in army. What kind of relationships did you have with your recruit? Like how close were you to them or how did you delegate tasks to them? And what would you, do, what would you say to them? How would you take care of them? Because you said that you needed to take care of all these people, right? People who would not want to be there, but they have to be there. It's a mandatory thing. So what's the sort of relationship dynamic that was going on between you and your recruits? Yeah, so... When I finished my basic military training, uh, there are two paths you can take. It's either officer school or cadet school, uh, specialist school. So I chose sar- like to become a sergeant or an officer, even though an officer is a higher rank. It's because sergeants are more on the field. They're with their recruits every day. Officers are mostly behind the scenes. They're the ones who plan out most of the things and sergeants execute it. And that's why I was close to my sergeant. He was there with me every, you know, day. And that made me want to become a sergeant. And it was good. I mean, my recruits, I'm, I still talk to a lot of them till now. It's been almost two years. So you have that bond even after you, you know, finish army or even after they progress onto the next Asian because uh, you're there with them every day. You wake up with them at five, you take them for breakfast, you bring them back, you train them, you take them for lunch, bring them back, train them, you know, take them for dinner, bring them back, same day, you know, the next day. So it's very close. You guys were very close when you, because you're going through the same, I don't want to say suffering, but like, you know, the same struggle or like the same pain or the same, 
you know, discipline of like waking up every single day and stuff, you know, like you're saying. So did that bring all of you close together? Of course. Uh, every day after activity, I always like to go in their bunks and have a chat with them just to know how they're feeling and stuff. Um, my first batch of recruits was was really nice. You know, it was my first time um, handling so many recruits. First time as me as a sergeant. So it was, it was pretty rookie at it. And uh, I was more like a good cop because my other sergeants were, you know, kind of bad cops. And I was really, you know, and in army, you always need to have that. You need some sergeants to kind of sympathize and some to be a little, you know, keep them on their toes. Because if they're too, if you're too, everyone's too nice to them, they won't listen to you. When it comes to my second batch of recruits, I was the bad cop. So I used to shout at them and make them do stuff for no reason. Just for the simple fact that all the other commanders were very nice to them. So someone had to keep them in line. But after the, when they, the graduation day, I apologized to them. I told them, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, that's how I like to train my recruits. And definitely it was beneficial for them, you know, because they did everything I listened to. <laughs> what would you make them do? Oh, so in army, mostly we give punishments like push-ups, sit-ups. I mean, it's a punishment, but, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, it helps them for their physical training as but well. But wait, why do they get punished in the first place? Oh, if they, you know, discipline, right? If I tell them to come at 5 p.m., if they even show up 10 seconds late, one second late, that's a punishment, right? So that they don't come late the next time. But of course, in, you're in army, there's so many people who are fit that push-ups, sit-ups, they won't learn anything. It's just their body doing the work. They'll still come late. So these type of uh, scenarios, I like to improvise a little bit. I've given punishments like uh, I've made a recruit talk to a tree for five minutes, explain what he did wrong. You know, it was funny, you know, but he won't do it again because he saw all of his other recruits watching him talk to a tree for five minutes. You know, well, what did he do wrong? Well, he was just playing around and uh, just not listening to instructions, you know? And you made him talk to a tree for five minutes. Yes, just explaining explain his tree. mistakes. Yes, exactly, wow. you know? That is funny. That is insane. Because, uh, I mean, for him also, he, he didn't take it badly. Even he found it a little funny. But if you do stupid things, I'll make you do stupid things as well, you know? That's how it is. That is that is a great story. That is one of the... One of the Things that you could do to leverage your power and find creative ways of bringing about that discipline. So, and hey, these these punishments and stuff, yeah, it's kind of variations because hey, even we've gone through different punishments too. You know, all sergeants have kind of different ways of doing work, and I like to make it fun environment as well. You know, like I don't want my punishments to be punishments where they don't learn and they hate me. You know. I want them to learn something, you know, discipline is very important. And even with me, when I entered army, you know, I thought I was disciplined. I thought I was mature, but nowhere close to it. No one is, you know, army really gets you on the track and prepares you for life after. Um, I want to move into the next segment per se. Lessons, right? Um, I'm sure there were a lot of lessons that you would have learned in your two years of army and what would you say is the biggest lesson or the biggest thing that you learned about yourself in army? I would say the biggest thing I learned is uh, no job is 
smaller. Nothing is, you know, not worth it, you know, in that sense. In Army, we worked as a team, even if it's like, yeah, we did training, of course, but when we were back in the bunk, who cleans our toilet? Us. Who cleans everything else? Us. So you do a lot of different things which help you in your day-to-day life. And also the the second uh, lesson is teamwork. Honestly, because when you're a sergeant, when you're training throughout your army journey, you can never do it alone. Army is where you actually, you have to be close with your mates. You know, we all push ourselves. You know, uh, we had so many activities like we had 30 kilometer march and stuff, which is a team activity. If one soldier fails, the whole team fails. So, you know, if someone can't carry their bag, one of us will help carry the bag for some time, you know. Some of us will help, you know, lift the back, push the person in front, you know, to finish the activity. So you really have to work as a team because you will never finish an activity or train recruits without a collective effort. So it's not a me for myself sort of situation. You sort of have to, you know, lean on others, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Yes, of course. I can tell you about this one activity we had where we had seven hours to complete a 32-kilometer march with our heavy bags, with our rifle. And at a 30-kilometer mark, we cross the river and we finish our march and we end up at at the range where we have to shoot 10 targets. And uh, it's a team effort. So when the first person starts, the last person in the team has to cross the finish line before seven hours. If the last person is crosses the seven-hour mark, the whole team fails. So we have to push everyone together as a team. But at the same time, all every individual knows, you know, if they really can't push themselves, they have to forfeit themselves so the whole team can finish it, you know. So you have that responsibility too, you know. You won't, like, I can't finish it, but I want to continue. But at the same time, the whole team will suffer. So I had times where, you know, some people really can't finish it. So they just forfeit out of it so the other team can finish it in the seven hours. So you have that personal responsibility too, but also responsibility to your team as well. It's really a reflection of life, I would say, right? That you can't do it alone, no matter what it is, you know, how big of a task, you know, to an extent, yeah, you know, you're, you can be by yourself as an individual, but... I feel like army establishes this importance of community and how important it is to stay close knit as a community. And I think that that's also one of the values in like the Singaporean lifestyle is individual versus community. And, you know, in that aspect, what do you think you've learned juggling between these two extremes? For sure. I mean, uh, even in my business class, we learned that side of the world is more, you know, community-based. That you know? side in the sense like... In Asia, in Singapore. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And over here, it's more individualism, right? But it's not a bad thing, you know? It's just the culture difference, I guess, right? But um, in army, yeah, it's... Everyone's wearing the same uniform. When you're in camp, same uniform. No one's bigger, no one's smaller, you know? Yes, rank does matter, but we all know that we are here for the same reason we are serving the army so everyone tend to help one another you know and i feel like that's even without army in singapore everyone's very helpful and friendly 
over here too it's definitely you know people are so friendly when i first moved here i was you know it was really nice i met so many nice people first year second year going my third year but of course over here it's you can see the difference of course and personally it was good that i moved here you know because singapore sometimes it just gets a bit too easy life just you know it's too easy you can you know feels a little repetitive repetitive know, it's, it's yes. comfortable it's very comfortable which is why it feels a little repetitive exactly so and just because it's a bit too comfortable you won't see a lot of singaporeans out in this world you know like i there are of course but not as many because over here it's just a totally different lifestyle you know but i strongly recommend a lot of people to you know come out of that comfort don't zone and you know come come here and then this will really you know help you survive in life but cuz singapore don't get me wrong i would love i miss singapore too like you said it's been a while two years i haven't gone to singapore but singapore does get a bit repetitive cuz you know everything is very systematic you won't have to worry about anything over here it's where like the reality comes and kicks the face i want to talk about comfort zone right and this is a topic that i've touched upon even in one of my previous podcasts i think the first episode and army obviously is a direct step out of your comfort zone and let's start with bmt in what ways were you put outside your comfort zone in bmt because to me when people describe ns to me i think that's the hardest part of ns would you say that it is definitely bmt like i said is a transition period you were a citizen like a day ago and now you're in, you know in army right so everything changes like you given your national id in to get your army card so you know everything changes in a flash so wait your, your national id in the sense so our national id card you have to surrender it in and you get something called 11b which is your army card which you will have for the 2 years and after you end the 2 years you get your national id back so you're officially registered as a soldier when you get that id exactly so or a recruit i, I must say exactly so and you still get to keep the id but it's invalid of course but that's just to uh that id is used for all army procedures right so if you want to uh issue out a resource you know you give in the id you get the resource out you give back the resource you get the id back so i mean a lot of businesses and like it's a common practice everywhere it's like a one card basically exactly it's like a one card yeah you can right. say that yeah okay well yeah so how how did bmt put you outside your comfort zone so as an international student i think i can a lot of international students can relate to this that the locals know we are from international schools you know so that already is a factor when you go in because they always single you out in that sense because you know you're not singaporean you know you're not local i mean you know singapore's multicultural right we have four different languages four different races but uh and in indian race is one of them and i may look like them but you know when i speak when i talk you know international school like you know you're not talking in singlish and stuff so you can definitely they can definitely tell you're not singaporean so definitely they'll be like oh. singlish by the way is the is the local dialect it's like yeah. this hybrid version of uh uh how would you even describe singlish to be singlish honest with you singlish is just uh english with singaporean accent with a mix of some chinese and malay yeah i think that's uh yeah it's a different code like on its own anyway yeah, yeah getting back to bmts so 
yeah, but um, they all know you're from international school, and they know you know international school students are a bit you know they used to call me like the brown angmo. So for a lot of people who didn't know don't know what angmo is, like angmo means some white person, a right? Caucasian yes, person. Yes, Caucasian person, and they used to call me the brown angmo because the way I spoke, you know, with an accent and stuff. But honestly, throughout army, like I came out with a Singaporean accent, you know. So definitely, it took me out of my comfort zone and. Uh, but honestly, I was very really open to it, you know, because most of my bunkmates, they're all Singaporeans. And through them, I got to, you know, kind of have that local experience in Singapore, uh, local food and like a lot of other local stuff I got to experience. And at, at the end of the army, like I made a lot of best friends, you know, a lot of best friends who, you know, I even cried when like one of my buddies got separated we got set we got put into different like vocations so he went to recon i went to infantry and you know it was just one of the saddest it days it was emotional yes it was emotional of course because you know in army from day one you have a buddy you know it's a buddy system but you did feel like a culture shock when you went into that uh, intensely singaporean lifestyle yeah of course uh, bmt you know they're talking in singlish you don't understand half the terms and they're like inside singaporean stuff which you don't understand but honestly you can ask this to any international student who's done army when we're in army even outside the camp that's all we talk about you know because we all have we want to share what we did because we, we all can relate and that just becomes your life for two years you know that's all you you know when, even when you out when you're in your camp, you know, it's army stuff. And you'll be like, okay, you know, I want to get out of camp. But when you get out of camp, you're still talking about army stuff. So, you know, you just get engrossed in it. But uh, it's definitely helped me a lot. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're, the reward at the end of the day, at the end of the two years, you know, is that you get to live in such a beautiful country like Singapore, live such a privileged, you know, lifestyle, and everything is just uh, Singapore is a, it's it's a different breed basically definitely and you know it's a small island you know but it has everything we have Universal Studios we even have Formula One and everything you know it's a small country but definitely so many opportunities a lot goes on in Singapore a lot goes exactly. on in Singapore and you know funnily enough you know you did mention that there's this difference in lifestyle over here in the West and the East, you know, the whole like individual versus community thing. But I feel like it's also very similar in a lot of ways. It's very Westernized in Singapore. You know, you don't, you wouldn't see as much as there's culture in Singapore and you can definitely see the concentrated spots of Singapore where you can really spot that culture. You also feel like you're in this highly developed environment and you're receiving this like really international sort of, you know, education and like lifestyle and all these like good things put into you. So NS is just a gateway to that. And I think it's completely worth it, especially for, you know, whatever you had planned for your future. I don't know what you have planned for your future. Do you want to go back? Yeah. I mean, uh, go back. I didn't go back to Singapore. Go back to Singapore. Do you want to live in Singapore? Honestly, I'm, I'm a type of person who, who wants to experience. That's why I moved all the way to Toronto, you know. And uh, I definitely want to see different places. But Singapore, it's, you know, it's home at the end of the day. You know, it's something which Man, I feel that, never, yeah. never. I will always go back eventually. But for now, I just want to, you know, I'm still young. I want to experience different things, you know. 
and really take that knowledge back there and you know let's see what happens you know i haven't thought about it yet but definitely singapore is home at the end of the day you know definitely it's been a while two years and when's the last time you went to singapore oh man um because of the pandemic i haven't been back in a bit but yeah it's been it's been over a year it's been over a year same for you i would say right yeah two years two, two years? years for sure yeah. yeah so i've been back so it's not been two years for me it's been just a year for me just a year? yeah i'm gonna go back as soon as i can yeah you said that authority is really important right especially in a role that you're in authority is very important and whenever i find myself in these leadership positions i always feel the need to establish trust with my teammates and in your position where authority is so important right more than experience like we talked about what did you do to ensure that okay this guy's just not here to like you know mess around he's he means business how did you how did you establish your authority because authority fine you know the rank okay fine you have the rank but how did you establish it how did you transcend it to your recruits so that they know okay this guy i need to respect him i need to yeah fine he's gone through it but like how did you command that respect and how did you establish your authority so my job as a commander is uh, to train them you know and uh, i be- my training comes from you know i also went through the same training so before every activity suppose you know for basic military training they have to this is the first time they fire weapons throw grenades and we don't put them in a situation where they're not prepared we definitely when it comes to live ammunition and stuff those kind of high risk activities we make sure everyone is prepared and as a good leader you have to know and you have to kind of even if someone says yes sergeant i'm prepared you can tell you know you have to as a leader you have to notice if they're actually prepared or not because you spend every day with them and uh for me i i honestly i don't like to shout at people and stuff because when you're shouting they don't focus at all it's the opposite you know but of course sometimes i do lose my patience you know of course, it, you have to be the bad cop sometimes exactly yeah but yeah in army before they go to the live range or anything they have to go through the basic training weapons like it's more than just shooting you know they have to learn how to keep their weapons clean how to handle their weapon when they get their weapon they sleep with their weapons they go piss with their weapons you know everything you know your weapons like your wife we call it oh yeah i've heard that before exactly take care so, of your rifle like it's your wife that's exactly. something like that so it's uh and you kind of inbuild that training from beginning you know like in basic military training the first day you go from teaching them how to tie their boots to you know the last week where you actually teaching them how to fire a weapon so eight weeks time it's it's a it's a very short period actually to you know kind of really get them ready every day is very intensive and uh, a lot of them i mean of course they have to respect authority in that sense but i also like to make it fun you know when teaching them as well you know i don't like to make activities which are you know boring they won't enjoy it in that sense as a recruit when i first went in of course i had a sergeant too but you know it's it's very different you know when i first joined i didn't even know what ranks were what you know it's very different you know everything even for local it's a bit different right like you know i have to who do i have to call sir who do i have to call officer 
it's a bit hard. And in army, when the recruits come in, they know, like from the day one, before they go to bed, as a sergeant, I have to conduct an interview with them one by one and kind of build that trust, you know, because the only way they will open up to me is if I actually go and approach them, you know. And every step of the way, I can say, and they know what the sergeants do for them. For example, during in Singapore, we celebrate Eid, you know, and all the Malay recruits, all the Muslim recruits, they fast, you know, and all my Malay commanders, like they fast with them, you know, they'll wake up extra early just to take the recruits to the cookhouse to make them eat and bring them back before, you know, so, you know, they can fast the whole day. So the recruits know what the sergeants do, you know. We we don't only, we not only with, with them during training, even after training, I go them go with them to their bunks and talk to them, just have a normal conversation. I always tell them, don't talk to me as your sergeant, you know, just talk to me like a normal friend, whatever. You have to really tell them that, you know, you can always come to me if you have any problem. Because, so that's how you establish the trust. Exactly. Because I know it's it's very hard for recruits, you know, especially the first week, you know, people can't sleep, you know, they're not allowed to use their phones, you know, a lot. It's all discipline and stuff, which they it's, will It's get, an alien environment. Basically. Exactly. So, uh, and every recruit goes through it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, but uh, they know that, you know, eventually like sergeants or your commanders, are there with you all the way, you know? If anything happens to them, we're the ones who take them to the hospital outside or, you know, with them at the every step of the way. So when, you know, when these recruits, they come in, um, firstly, you wouldn't be in that sergeant position if you weren't taught to be assertive enough, powerful enough, or, you know, capable enough, right? So I guess, the respect and the authority is commanded that way already in the sense that when a recruit comes in, they know, okay, the sergeant has been to this this course, this school, they've done all this. So that instant is, the, the, the respect is instantly there, you would say? Is that is that right? Am I right in saying that? That is right. And um, it's uh, the small, small things, I would say, you know, because you, you can be a leader and you don't have to be very, you know, with authority, you know, give commands, you know, every day, every task. Uh, it's all experience too. Um, and during basic multi training, um, during their fifth, sixth week, there is the first time they spend uh, six days in the jungle. And uh, if uh, they have to dig a shell scrape, so when they go in the jungle, they kind of dig like a grave. So that's where they sleep inside. It's kind of a training exercise because during um, war, if there's artillery strikes, you know, that's your cover, right? That's you sleep in a cover. So that to dig that grave, it takes about seven, eight hours, you know, quite a while. But when you go to command school, we have to do it in one hour, two hours, you know? So it's, it's really, and I'm just one year in, but it's the experience, the way you do it. And when you teach them, they'll be like, okay, yeah, like, you know, he knows more than me. Like, he knows what he's doing. So I would say you always have to trust your training as a leader and just focus on that. And teacher, once you uh, show the recruits that, you know, you know what you're doing, 
they will eventually listen to you because they'll know like, okay, he's gone through the whole process. He's actually guiding me. You know, he's actually making my life easy. And that's how that respect builds up. If you go in full guns blazing, they're not going to listen to you, you know? That's, that's very much applicable to any leadership position, I would even say. You know, a good leader shows them how it's done rather than tells them how it's done. Leads by example. And, you know, experience, as you said, also plays a lot into it, not just in a business setting, but even in an army setting, right? That's how the respect is commanded. And, um, yeah, one of the interesting things is the fact that you, you guys spend five or six days in a jungle. Yeah, so it's a six days. Uh, um, my recruits, like, it's the first time they go. It's called outfield training. So they go outside and they kind of train, you know, in the jungle, different kind of activities. Now, and when stuff. you say jungle, like, um, is because I've heard of this before, and isn't it like this like separate island that they go to where it's like a deserted island with like nothing on it, and you just have to survive for five days or six days in there, and they show you and learn survival techniques over there. Yeah, I would say that's uh, in basic military training, uh, they go uh, for five days, yes. But that's not more of like survival. I mean, survival, yeah, they get basic training on that. But the main thing is for them to know all the maneuvers in the jungle, you know, if they, you know, it's more focused on how they're going to fight in a warfare and stuff. And yes, we have an island and the island is actually where my camp was. So all the recruits actually are on one island and the island's big enough. There's a part jungle part, which, you know, you go in a truck and then it's on the same island. But it's because Singapore, we don't have, you know, jungles like that. So but yeah, the island is Takong. So that's where I started my journey as a recruit and ended my journey as a sergeant. I feel like discipline is sort of built into the Singapore culture, you know? Yeah, like, you know, people stand, you know, if Singaporeans see a line, they'll just stand in the line without knowing what the line's for, you know? And it's very, like, patient. Singaporeans are very patient. I think there's a word for that, right? Kiasu? Is that, is that, is that it? Kiasu? No. I don't think so. Kiasu. What is uh, the fear of missing out in oh. Singlish? Oh. Oh. In Singlish, in Singlish. I don't know. Actually. I'm just going to look that up now. <laughs> a grasping selfish attitude. Yeah. Ah, yeah, 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 Kiasu. Fear of losing out. Yeah. But I feel like discipline, you know, is sort of built into the Singapore culture in the sense that even a lot of the rules, you see these fines, the outrageous fines just for littering on the streets. It's like $5,000 or like, uh, and even, you know, the fact that chewing gum is illegal. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but chewing gum is actually illegal in Singapore. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why a lot of people when they say, oh, why is uh, chewing gum illegal in Singapore? Honestly, it's that's what I heard is that, you know, like apparently like Lee Kuan Yew, the first uh, prime minister, he went to New York and then he just saw like a chewing gum getting stuck between a door of a train and it's not opening up. So uh, he just, I think, decided uh, just to not have chewing gum at all. And I mean, fair to him, I go to all the Ryerson classes and everything that's under my desk is just chewing gums, you know? <laughs> so I understand where he's coming from. Man, I've, I've heard a different story. I've heard, I don't know if this is just like rumors going around in Singapore, but uh -huh. I've, heard, I've heard something like, oh, there's like a trade reason back in the day or like to, to save some like exports or import money or something like that. That's that's what I heard. But I guess everyone has their own version of the story. I, I guess. guess so, you know. Um, but it would definitely make sense for the reason to keep the reason that is to keep Singapore clean because Singapore is as clean as a city comes. 
it's insanely clean even even the even the metro like uh sorry the subway we call it the mrt mass rapid trans transit it's what it's called extremely clean and well maintained and you know there's this just order and system and it's it's just unmatched i don't think you can see that any, anywhere else in the world to be quite honest with you yeah. Well yeah the you know Singapore there's there's you know we call it the fine country you know yes yes because you know it's full of fines for everything right everything you do but uh, yeah it can be i know like you know as in Singapore like we don't really like these but we all know that at the end of the day all these fines and stuff keep the city clean and you know keep everything in order that's what makes Singapore Singapore and you know there's even this rule that you so there's a fruit called durian Yeah. You know that and it smells. You know, you can if there's a durian like 10 feet away from you, even like, you know, further than that, you can smell the durian. And to even have a durian on one of the trains is illegal. Yeah. It's illegal. So you're not even allowed to take a durian on the train. That's how strict the rules are in Singapore. And uh that's what keeps Singapore Singapore. I think it's a small city, right? It's a small city state, 5 million people populate population. and that's their way of maintaining it maintaining order and it's just discipline is just built into the value uh of uh singapore couldn't agree more i want to keep talking about singapore bro i miss it you know just talking yeah. about singapore is bringing back all these memories of you know going to school for sure i i mean hey i i remember the first time like we had a conversation it was uh uh outside a bar uh- <laughs> right yes Dad, if That's you're actually the listening to this. <laughs> I was just there to pick up a friend. He was drinking water. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking care of my friends. I was a good boy. Yes, All right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were yeah, we were we met at the back of it where all our friends were there and I was like, hey, was you're going act- to Ryerson. Yes. I'm going to Ryerson too." Yeah, yeah, I remember that night. Yes. Yes, yes. Um coming back to the fact that you know we both went to the same school in Singapore. I feel like coincidences have just been a part of us for some reason, you know, it's just it has been so many coincidences. We started off in the same school like NPS, right? Yeah. What grade did you join NPS? 5th. So when it same. first started, right? Same. Yeah. I joined in 5th grade as well. Yeah. And then when you joined and then we went to this school, other school, it's called OFS, Overseas Family School. And I moved there for my final 2 years of high school. Same here. Same same. right same trajectory and then we both ended up in Ryerson yeah and then we both became roommates out of pure coincidence i just happened to choose the same room as him yeah and honestly even in singapore honestly we would have met uh, it's just that we were in a different grade right we yeah. were in different grades so we just our paths didn't cross but we always you know saw each other and knew of one another but you know yeah i knew of him i would i would i even knew of i knew of you like since like Eight years ago. Yeah, you know, it's same here. But you know, we never had that opportunity to kind of connect yeah. and talk. And Ryerson, I mean, there are few of us here. You know, there are few of us here, so it makes sense. You know, that we take care of one another. Exactly. It's it's the sense of belonging that you get whenever you see someone from Singapore, like you know, the same school. It's like, okay, we didn't talk there, but hey, here's this thing common between us, and that brings us together. And I, th- and I think that's that's beautiful. I think that's great. Mm-hmm. and um yeah i'm glad to have had all these coincidences and we're here talking to this uh mike 
you know, with this common objective. I think that's that's the beauty of these, all these coincidences that have taken place. And uh, I want to wrap up, honestly. I'll wrap up. Uh, and I always give, I like to give this call to action at the end of my episodes. And I feel like for you, a person like you who's been through the, who's been through these two years of NS experience and you didn't want to just get it over with you wanted to make something out of it and you did you put yourself in this leadership position and you learned your lessons and you gave us some really interesting stories today so i think leading with courage and embracing change and making the best of change rather than trying to suppress it or be like okay i'm just going to get this over with and then i'm done embrace it see that there's lessons to be learned from it and i think you are an embodiment of that and ns is an embodiment of that and singapore itself is an embodiment of that i think i've learned a lot as well being in singapore and then coming here you know i've also gone through that change and uh, yeah what would you say about these two call to actions yes of course and uh, to build upon the leading with courage part i feel like not only army but any leadership position you have to lead with courage and uh, going back to the point we discussed about trust you know putting myself out there in basic military training, um, there's an activity uh, where my recruits, uh, for the first time, learn how to throw a grenade. And uh, it's a very exciting time because even I was a recruit who threw a grenade for the first time. The rush, everything is, you know. But at the same time, we, safety is very important. And as a platoon sergeant, one of my job was become a safety. And I had to stand next to each of my recruits when they threw a grenade. So even the recruits know, you know, my sergeant's here with me, you know. I don't have to be there, you know. I'm putting myself on the line while they're throwing it just to ensure their safety, you know. In the hot sun all day, standing next to each person throwing a grenade, be vigilant to see if they're doing right, wrong, telling them if they're doing something right, wrong. And, you know, they, they respect that. They respect that and they would trust you even more. Like, so all the little things you do in army for your recruits, the recruits will never forget it, you know? Till now, like I haven't forgotten my sergeant and what he did, right? Because those, that, that inspired me to become a sergeant. And that's why like I wanted to inspire my recruits, you know, to become sergeants or officers, to putting myself out there, showing them that, you know, you can, this can be you, you know, in a year's time leading other people. You know, and it's a really good opportunity. And coming to the second call to action, which is change. Is that right? Yeah, change, honestly, throughout my life, you know, you can relate, you know, moving from different countries and stuff, changes, you know, everywhere, uh, especially coming from, you know, Singapore to Canada, you know, it's a totally different other side of the world. 12 hours, Singapore's 12 hours ahead, you know, keeping contact with my family, friends. It's, it's really different, right? It's tricky, yes. It's tricky. And also, you know, university and stuff. And it, it's, it becomes hard sometimes, you know, keeping in touch with people. And it, uh, but uh, I would say change is also very important, you know. And I, I like to put myself to certain, you know, changes in life. And, uh, you know, I've studied in India, I've studied in Singapore, I've studied in Canada, and now I'm intended to go on exchange to France. And I really, you know, I'm doing all I can to really 
see everything, you know, because I love moving around. And it's always been happening. My, my, my dad has been traveling for work, you know, all his life. And I've been following him. So, you know, and I'm kind of used to it in that sense. And I always believe like there's a lot of, you know, different things to see and different things to learn. Of course, I've traveled everywhere, but living, studying, working in a place is totally different than just traveling and seeing different places. Right. So, yeah, it's rewarding. It's just rewarding to put yourself through these changes. You know, as the cliche goes, the only constant in our life is change. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I can totally understand, like my younger sister, she's 14. And like I said, my family just moved to Dubai from Singapore. She's leaving everything behind, all her friends. Like, you know, imagine like a 14-year-old teenager just, you know. So for her, she is also going to what I went when I moved from India to Singapore, you know. The first change, I would say, is the hardest, you know. And especially when you're like in your teenagers, I would say that's the main time when you actually, you know, make a lot of good friends and stuff. And uh, I definitely like my sister, like she always texts me like, you know, like, you know, what do I do? What do I do? I tell her, you know, always make new friends. You don't have to forget your old friends. You can still keep in contact with them. You know, the world's small, right? Like you never know in the future, you might be in university with them in another country, you know. But uh, I would say never hold yourself back because of change. You know, you have to learn how to adapt. When we come here as international students, we have to adapt. We are the ones who have to adapt. We have to learn different cultures. We can't be, you know, restrictive or, you know, we can't. Otherwise, we're never going to, you know, make the most out of the opportunities given to us. I think that's a great note to finish today's episode. Um, yeah, man, I just want to thank you, man. Thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing all these interesting stories and everything that you've been through. And reiterating the call to action at the end of it and uh yeah thank you yeah thank you for having me and it's really nice i mean it's it's been a while since you know i spoke about singapore to someone in a long time you know yeah especially ns you know like it's been almost two years since i finished army but you know you never forget it you know it's just like yesterday Thank you for tuning into New Light Network. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can listen to New Light Network on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. For more content, follow us on Instagram at newlightnet and check out our YouTube for more clips and behind-the-scenes content. I'll catch you on the next one. This is Ani, signing off. Peace.